Jesus' Teaching at Genesareth and Banks of Jordan, Part 9 Jesus Cures Peter's Mother-in-Law Peter's Great Humility Jesus now went without delay with the disciples out of the city gate and along the mountain to Peter's in Bethsaida. They had urged him to do so, for they thought that Peter's mother-in-law was dying. Her sickness had very much increased, and now she had a raging fever. Jesus went straight into her room. He was followed by some of the family. I think Peter's daughter was among them. He stepped to that side of the bed to which the sick woman's face was turned, and leaned against the bed, half standing, half sitting, so that his head approached hers. He spoke to her some words, and laid his hand upon her head and breast. She became perfectly still. Then standing before her, he took her hand and raised her into sitting posture, saying, Give her something to drink. Peter's daughter gave her a drink out of a vessel in the form of a little boat. Jesus blessed the drink and commanded the invalid to rise. She obeyed and arose from her low couch. Her limbs were bandaged and she wore a wide nightdress. Disengaging herself from the bandages, she stepped to the floor and rendered thanks to the Lord, the entire household uniting with her. At the meal that followed, she helped with the other woman and, perfectly recovered, served a table. After that, Jesus, with Peter, Andrew, James, John, and several of the other disciples, went to Peter's fishery on the lake. In the instruction he gave them, he spoke principally of the fact that they would soon give up their present occupations and follow him. Peter became quite timid and anxious. He fell on his knees before Jesus, begging him to reflect upon his ignorance and weakness, and not to insist on this undertaking anything so important, that he was entirely unworthy and quite unable to instruct others. Jesus replied that his disciples should have no worldly solicitude, that he who gave health to the sick would provide for their subsistence and furnish them with the ability for what they had to do. All were perfectly satisfied, excepting Peter, who, in his humility and simplicity, could not comprehend how he was for the future to be not a fisherman, but a teacher of men. This, however, is not the call of the apostles related in the gospel. That had not yet taken place. Peter had nevertheless already given over a great part of his business to Zebedee. After this walk by the lake, Jesus again went to Capernaum and found an unusual number of sick around Peter's house outside the city. He cured many and taught again in the synagogue. As the concourse of people continued to increase, Jesus, without being noticed, disengaged himself from the crowd and went alone to a wild but very pleasant ravine which extended to the south of Capernaum, from Zerubbabel's mansion to the dwellings of his servants and workmen. In it were grottoes, bushes, and springs, numerous birds, and all kinds of tame, rare animals. It was a skillfully cared-for solitude belonging to Zerubbabel, besides being a part of that garden of pleasure. Genesareth thrown open to the public. Jesus spent the night alone and in prayer, the disciples being ignorant of his whereabouts. Early next morning, he left the wilderness, but not to return to Capernaum. He ordered Peter and another of the disciples, who had come to seek him, to send Parmenas, Saturnin, Aristobulus, and Tharsisus to a certain place where he would meet them and thence go to the baths of Bethulia. He went around the height of the valley on which lay Magdalene, which he passed a couple of hours eastward to the left, 
On the south side of this height was the city of Jedabatha. Part 10. Jesus at the Baths of Bethulia and in Jedabatha. At first I thought that Jesus was going to Jedabras, situated among the mountains, about three hours west of Tiberias. But he did not go there, but to the north side of the valley, where was the fountain of Bethuel. A great many wealthy and distinguished people from Galilee and Judea owned villas and gardens here, which they occupied in the beautiful season of the year. On the south side of the lake, formed by the northern declivity of the heights of Bethuel, were rows of houses and warm baths, those toward the east being the warmer. The baths had one large reservoir in common, around which were private apartments formed by tents, and then were tubs sunk to a greater or lesser depth in the water, according to the convenience of the bathers. These private apartments communicated with the reservoir. There were many inns in the neighborhood of the baths. A private house and garden could also be hired for the season with everything also else free. The revenues belonged to the city of Bethulia, and were used principally to keep up the baths. The waters of the lake were uncommonly pure, clear, as a mirror to the very bottom, which was paved with beautiful little white pebbles. It was fed by a stream from the east, which flowed from the baths in the valley of Magdalene. The lake swarmed with little pleasure boats, which in the distance looked like ducks. On the north side of the lake, but facing south, were dwellings for the accommodation of female visitors at the baths. Their walks and pleasure grounds, however, were near the brook that flowed through those of the men. Both sides of the valley formed a gentle declivity toward the lake. From the dwellings and baths there ran around the lake, crossing and opening into one another, shady avenues, embowered walks with wide-stretching trees and luxuriant foliage, among which lay meadows of very high and beautiful grass, orchards, vegetable gardens, and grounds for riding and games. The view was enchantingly beautiful, hills and mountains, all teeming with the most exuberant fertility, rich especially in grapes and fruits. The second harvest of the year was now ripe. Jesus remained on the side of the lake by which he had come and put up at a traveler's inn. People soon gathered around him, and he taught them with great sweetness outside the inn. Many women were among his hearers. Next morning I saw a number of little boats coming over from the south side of the lake where the bathers were. It was a deputation of the most distinguished men come to invite Jesus, courteously to return with them and preach. Jesus ferried across with them and went to an inn where they presented him with a little luncheon. He taught in the cool of the morning and evening under shady trees, on a hill not far from the inn. Most of his hearers stood around him, the woman on one side veiled. The order observed was truly pleasing. The people were, for the most part, well-bred and well-inclined, cheerful and good-humored. As there were no factions among them, one did not fear to give vent to his feelings before the others. Consequently, they were all most reverential and attentive to Jesus. They were perfectly carried away and rejoiced by his very first discourse. He taught of purification by water, of the union, equality, and the feeling of confidence that reigned among them, of the mystery of water, of the washing away of sin, of the bath of baptism as administered by John, of the charity and good understanding that ought to unite the baptized, the converted, etc. He borrowed, moreover, subject matter and graceful similitudes from the lovely season, from the country around, the mountains, trees, fruit, and herds, in short, from everything they saw about them. I saw his audience around Jesus in a circle, and at times exchanging places with newcomers to whom he repeated the substance of his last discourse. 
I saw some gouty invalids moving slowly about. They were mostly government officials and officers who were enjoying a vacation. I recognized them by the uniforms they wore when leaving for their different garrisons around the country. During their stay in the baths, all were dressed alike with nothing to distinguish them from the other people. The men wore fine yellow woolen stuff made into tunics of four separate skirts, one above the other. The lower one wrapped into a kind of trousers down to the knees. Somewhat barefoot, others wore sandals. The upper part of the body was covered with a scapular open at the sides and bound at the waist by a broad girdle. The shoulders were covered with an arm flap that reached halfway to the elbow. The head was uncovered. They played at games, fighting with little sticks and armed with shields made of leaves. They attacked one another in rows and also singly, aiming at pushing their opponents from their places. They ran towards a goal for a wager, jumped over ropes, sprang through hoops upon which all sorts of glittering things were hanging. These were not to touch in passing through, otherwise they tinkled and fell off. The contestant for the prize lost in proportion to the number thus displaced. The prizes consisted of fruit which I saw lying ready for the winners. I saw some playing on reed flutes. Others had long, thick reeds through which they gazed into the distance and into the lake. Sometimes they blew balls or little arrows through them, as if they were shooting after fishes. I saw that these reeds were flexible. They could be bent to form a ring and then hung on the arm. I saw them also sticking glass globes of different colors on the ends of the reeds and waving them to and fro, thus reflecting the light of the sun. The whole landscape was mirrored in the globes, but in an inverted position. When the globes were revolved, the whole lake appeared to be passing overhead. This greatly diverted the beholders. The fruits, and especially the grapes, were truly magnificent. I saw some persons very respectfully and courteously bringing some of the finest to Jesus. The dwellings of the women were on the opposite side of the valley, but the baths were on this side, more toward the east and out of sight of those of the men. On the banks of the stream that flowed into the lake, I saw little boys in short white woolen tunics, with willow switches of various colors in their hands, driving flocks of different kinds of aquatic birds. The water from the stream and lake was conducted up to the ends of the height and also to the baths. It was received in channels from which it was raised to higher reservoirs, and from them to others, and so on. I saw the women also playing at different games on the green. They were very modestly clothed in fine white woolen wrappers that fell around them in numerous folds and were girded twice, over the breast and again at the waist. The wide sleeves could be raised or lowered by means of buckles. Around the wrists they had large, stiff frills with many folds, like the tail of a peacock. Their headdress consisted of a cap of circular puffs, graduated lower and narrower, wound with silk or small feathers of natural whiteness. It looked like a snail shell made of feathers. It was tied behind, and a long point made of tassels hung down the back. They wore no veil, but over the face were two sections of finely plated, white, transparent stuff like half fans, which reached to below the nose, and had holes for the eyes. They could lower them in part if they wished to guard against the sun, and throw them entirely back. Before men, they were lowered. I saw the women amusing themselves lustily at the following game. Each had a girdle ending in a ring, or a loop, around her waist. They formed a circle, each holding her neighbor fast by the loop with one hand, the other being free. A trinket was concealed in the grass, and they turned round here and there in a circle until one of the players spied it. When she stopped to pick it up, the others in the circle gave a sudden jerk. Those following likewise stooped after the treasure, each one trying not to fall. Sometimes they tumbled over one another amid shouts of laughter.
Bethulia was situated on a plateau in a mountainous region, solitary and wild. It was an hour and a half south of the lake. Above it was a great, rough-looking tower, many ruined walls and towers. Once upon a time, the city must have extended much further, been very strongly fortified. Trees were now growing on those walls, upon which vehicles could be driven, and I saw the visitors at the baths promenading on them. The city lay high up around the mountain. Here it was that Judith became illustrious. The camp of Holofernes stretched from the lake south through the ravine of Jedabatha around to Dothan, a couple of hours to the south of Bethulia. From Jedabatha also there were visitors at the baths. They did not wait to hear Jesus' instructions, but, returning to Jedabatha, spread the news of his presence in Bethulia. Jedabatha was situated about an hour and a half to the southeast, built in the bosom of the mountains, as in an immense cave. Before it rose a mountain from which the descent into the city was over deep, wild ditches. It appeared to be built in a deep quarry, the mountain hanging high over it. To the north of this mountain, not quite two hours distant, was Magdalene, on the edge of a deep dale, with the surroundings of avenues, gardens, and towers of all kinds stretching off into the middle of it. Between the mountain and Magdalene were still standing the remains of the channel of an aqueduct, through whose arches one could look far off into the country. The channel was now overgrown by vines and foliage. Southward from Jedabatha rose another wild mountain, pierced right and left by broad ravines. It was a region full of wonderful hiding places. There were numerous Herodians in Jedabatha. In a wall of the fortifications, they had a secret meeting place. The sect was composed of shrewd, intelligent people ranged under a secret superior. They had signs where barely recognized one another. The chiefs could also tell, how I do not now know, if a member had betrayed anything. Secret enemies of the Romans, they were plotting a revolution in favor of Herod. Although in reality followers of the Sadducees, yet in the exterior they conformed to the Pharisees, thinking in this way to draw over both parties to their designs. They knew indeed that the time had come for the appearance of the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and they resolved to make use of the general belief for the furtherance of their ends. Exteriorly, and through motives of cunning, they were very bland and tolerant, though really treacherous sneaks. They had, properly speaking, no religion at all, but under the cloak of piety, they labored at the founding of an independent kingdom of this world, and Herod supported them in their intrigues. When the synagogue of Genabatha heard of Jesus' presence in the neighborhood, they sent two Herodians to the baths of Thulia to find out what sort of a person he was and to invite him to Genabatha. Jesus, however, gave them no decided answer as to whether he would go or not. About seven of the disciples that had journeyed with him a couple of weeks before met him here again. Two of them were John's disciples, some relatives of his who also were disciples from the country of Hebron, one was a cousin from Lesser Sephorus. They had been seeking him in Galilee, and had now found him. During those days, I saw Jesus speaking confidentially with several of the guests at the baths. There must have been some of his own followers among them. When the Hordians returned to Jedabatha, one of them set about preparing the people in case Jesus should come to their city. He told them that Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, was now nearby at the baths of Bethulia, would probably visit their city for the coming Sabbath. He was the one who had made a great uproar in Capernaum on the preceding Sabbath, and on the Sabbath before that in Nazareth. He warned them not to be seduced by him, not to applaud him, not even to let him speak for any length of time, but to interrupt him with murmurs and contradictions 
whenever he said anything singular or unintelligible. And so the people were prepared for Jesus' coming. Jesus delivered, at the Baths of Bethulia, another discourse full of beauty and simplicity. Numbers of men formed around him a circle in which he moved about among them. At a distance in the background, several men lay with the gout or for timidly standing. They had come to make use of the baths, but had not yet ventured to approach Jesus. Jesus repeated what he had taught yesterday and the day before, exhorting his audience to purification from sin. All hearts were touched and turned to him. Many exclaimed, Lord, who could hear thee and resist thy words? Jesus replied, You have heard much about me, and now you listen to my words. Who do you think I am? Some said, Lord, thou art a prophet. Others answered, Thou art more than a prophet. No prophet ever taught such things as thou dost teach. None has ever done the things that thou hast done. But others again kept silence. Jesus, penetrating the thoughts of these last, pointed to them, said, These men's thoughts are the right ones. Some of them said, Lord, thou canst do all things. Is it not so? They said that thou hast even raised the dead, the daughter of Jairus. Is it so? The speaker alluded to that Jairus, who had dwelt in a city not far from Gibeah, where Jesus had, at an earlier period, instructed the poor depraved inhabitants. Jesus answered the question addressed to him by a simple yes, and then his questioner went on to inquire why Jairus still remained in so disreputable a place. Thereupon Jesus began to speak of fountains in the desert, applying the similitude to the necessity of the weak for a powerful leader. Jesus' hearers were full of confidence, and they questioned him with simplicity. Then he asked them, What do you know of me? What evil do men say of me? Some answered, They complain that thou dost not discontinue thy works on the Sabbath day, and that thou healest the sick on that day. Then Jesus pointed to a little neighboring field near a pond, in which shepherd boys were guarding tender lambs and other young cattle, said, See those young shepherd boys and their tender lambs. If one of the little animals should fall into the pond on the Sabbath and bleat for help, would not all the others stand around the brink, bleeding piteously also? Now the poor little shepherds could not help the lamb out. But supposing the son of the master of the flocks were passing by, supposing he had been charged to look after the lambs and see to their pasture, would he not be touched with pity at the sound of the poor little thing's bleeding? Would he not hasten to draw it out of the mire? Here all raised their hands like children at catechism and cried out, Yes, yes, he would. Jesus went on, And if it were not a lamb, if it were the fallen children of the Heavenly Father, if it were your own brethren, yes, if it were yourselves, should not the Son of the Heavenly Father help you on the Sabbath? All cried out again, Yes, yes. Then Jesus pointed to the men sick of the gout standing afar off and said, Behold your sick brethren. Shall I not help them if they implore my assistance on the Sabbath day? Shall they not receive pardon of their sins if they bewail them on the Sabbath day? If they confess them on the Sabbath and cry to their Father in heaven? With uplifted hands they all cried out, Yes, yes. Then Jesus motioned to the gouty patients, and they moved slowly and heavily into the circle. He spoke a few words to them on faith, prayed for a while, and said, Stretch out your arms. They stretched out their afflicted arms toward him. Jesus passed his hand down them, breathed for an instant on their hands, and they were cured, were able to use their limbs. Jesus commanded them to bathe and warned them to abstain from certain drinks. They cast themselves at his feet, giving thanks. 
while the whole assembly sang canticles of praise and glory. Jesus wanted to depart, but they begged him to remain with them. They were full of love and good intentions. They were very much impressed. He told them that he had to proceed further and fulfill his mission. They accompanied him a part of the way with the disciples. He dismissed them with his blessing and went on to Jedabatha, about an hour and a half to the east. It was afternoon when Jesus arrived at his destination. He washed his feet and took a luncheon at an inn outside the city. The disciples went before him into Jedabatha to the chief of the synagogue and requested the key for their master, who wished to teach. People hurriedly gathered in crowds, the doctors of the law and the Herodians were all expectancy to ensnare him in his doctrine. When he had taken his place in the synagogue, they put to him questions upon the approach of the kingdom, the computation of time, the fulfilling of the weeks of Daniel, and the coming of the Messiah. Jesus answered in a long discourse, showing that the prophecies were now fulfilled. He spoke too of John and his prophecies, whereupon they took occasion to warn him hypocritically to be careful as to what he said in his instructions, not to set aside the Jewish customs and to take a lesson from John's imprisonment. What he said of the fulfillment of the weeks of Daniel, of the near coming of the Messiah, and of the king of the Jews was excellent and quite in accordance with their own ideas. But as he told them, might seek where they would, they would still know or find the Messiah. Jesus had, though rather vaguely, applied the prophecies to himself. They understood him well enough, but they pretended that such things could not happen to anyone, that they had failed to catch his meaning. In reality, they wanted to force him to speak out more clearly, so that they might get something of which to accuse him. Jesus said to them, How you play the hypocrite? What turns you away from me? Why do you despise me? You leave snares for me, and you seek to form new plots with the Sadducees, as you did in Jerusalem at the Pasch. Why do you caution me, sending John and Herod? Then he cast into their face Herod's shameful deeds, his murders, his dread of the newborn king of the Jews, his cruel massacre of the innocents, and his frightful death, the crimes of his successors, the adultery of Antipas, and the imprisonment of John. He spoke of the hypocritical, secret sect of the Herodians, who were in league with the Sadducees, and showed them what kind of a Messiah and what sort of a kingdom of God they were awaiting. He pointed to different places in the distance, saying, They will be able to do nothing against me until my mission is fulfilled. I shall twice traverse Samaria, Judea, and Galilee. You have witnessed great signs wrought by me, and seeing still greater, you shall remain blind. Then he spoke of judgment, of the death of the prophets, and of the chastisement that was to overtake Jerusalem. The Herodians, that secret society, seeing themselves discovered, blanched with rage when Jesus referred to Herod's misdeeds and laid open the secrets of the sect before the people. They were silent and, one by one, left the synagogue, as did also the Sadducees, who here had charge of the schools. There were no Pharisees at Genabatha. Jesus now found himself alone with his seven disciples and the people. He continued to teach some time longer, and many were very much impressed. They declared that he, they had never listened to such instructions, and that he taught better than their own teachers. They reformed their lives and followed him later. But a large part of the people, instigated by the Sadducees and Herodians, murmured against him and raised a tumult. Jesus therefore left the city with the disciples and went southward through the valley and then up for a couple of hours into a harvest field between Bethulia and Genabras. Here he put up at a large farmhouse whose occupants were well known to him. The holy women had often stayed here overnight on their journeys to Bethania, 
The messengers between them and the Savior used to put up at the same place.